our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, and I got mean faces from all of the other pastors when Keith agreed to give me John 4. Keith didn't even hand it over with a whole lot of enthusiasm, but uh, he's out of town. So uh, John 4, just a classic exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman where we're going to see Jesus doing what he often does. And he's invading this woman's space. And every time you see red letters, he's moving closer and closer to the things she wants to hide the most. And he's moving closer and closer to the things that he wants to do in her the most. And so it's just a wonderful passage. Uh, and it actually reminded me of a relational dynamic. Perhaps you've experienced it before. You ever had the occasion to be kind of flung into a relationship, a relationship that becomes a close personal friendship? Uh, not because necessarily you were this uh, open and friendly, conversational type of person, but because somebody else asked invasive questions about your life and you found yourself letting them get away with it. And uh, over the course of just a brief period of time, there you had this close friendship that was open and honest. Um, we've had such a relationship with our very own Carrie Shepherdstein which I'm sure many of you have experienced this with Carrie. There are just certain types of personalities. You know if you have this and you know other people who have this who can get away with asking questions nobody else can get away with asking <laughs> or saying things nobody else can get away with saying. And uh, I think I remember the first conversation I had with Carrie. Carrie, I don't know, you probably don't remember this, but we were at the old Lakeview building just after Paul and I moved here. And we had been introduced. Paul and I had met Pete and Carrie. And we didn't really know him, just kind of high by and Carrie's sitting there, and they had a, a Christmas musical rehearsal one night, and I was there, and Carrie wasn't there for the, she wasn't in the choir, thank heavens, but she was, she was there for, uh, she was there, I mean, Pete, Pete was going, to, you know, he was trying to get a job, frankly, so he was everywhere that stuff was going on, and there was Carrie at the Christmas musical rehearsal, and she's sitting right there, and I had done a song, and then I was waiting, I was going to wait down here and then come up and practice the next song. So in the deft balance of being neither impersonal nor overly casual, I, I nodded to Carrie on my way and uh, said hello and put about three seats between us, sat down and proceeded to watch the Christmas practice go on. Carrie cuts the seat chasm down by one, which I picked up on my spider sense. And uh, she comes over and then she starts to just ask these questions, you know, just like it was like a Barbara Walters type of moment. And she just instantly climbing into my upbringing and past. And within, you know, two minutes, probably two minutes, she's 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 going, man. So what was it like to to experience the loss of a loved one? You, you were 12 years old. And, I'm, you know, it's like, are you going to be cutting onions underneath this in just a second or what? You know, she's just had just climbed into my space. <laughs> but but uh, but really, that dynamic has marked that relationship. There's a sincerity. There's a genuineness. There's a there's a certain degree of unpredictability that's characterized the relationship ever since. And Jesus can do the same thing. I mean, if I ask that kind of question to one of you right after I met you, you lower your eyebrows, get up and have to go to the bathroom or have to return a telemarketer's phone call or something you would do to get out of there because you wouldn't feel I can't get away with that kind of stuff. Carrie can. Apparently, Jesus can. Jesus pulls a carry on people throughout the Gospels. 
And we're going to look at one such moment this morning in John 4 when Jesus pulls a carry on the Samaritan woman and just begins to ask probing questions. And it's marked by a balance of being caring and kind and evocative. He's, he's drawing her out. He's, he's probing around in her life to find out what she thinks and what's going on. Let's read this passage in John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, if you come to the well with this Samaritan woman, you have no idea that this conversation is about worship until the end. She doesn't see this coming. Jesus just comes in. There he is on the well. She sizes him up basically to be a pivot aged Jew. 
who looks really, really tired. And he's annoyingly in my way because I need to get water. And apparently she wanted to get water when nobody else was getting water. It's the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus himself is worn out from walking and the heat of it all. And he sits down on the well. She wants to come to the well when nobody else is there. She doesn't want to be around people. And she sees Jesus right there. She's walking into this. And Jesus, though she doesn't know anything, I believe Jesus knows exactly what he's after that day in Samaria. Jesus has an end goal in mind when he engages this woman. He wants to turn her into a worshiper of God. He wants to draw her heart out. Drop the burden off her back of her. Of her prostitution, of her immoral lifestyle. He wants to set her free and make her a worshiper. She doesn't see that, though, when she comes. Let's back up for a second. We're going to take in. The big picture of Jesus in John and Jesus in John 4. It's very important to bear in mind as we begin looking at John 4 that this is a gospel. And this gospel of John has an explicit objective in it. John 20, verse 31. But these are written. Things in this book have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This comment, I think, is very insightful from D.A. Carson. He's writing to preachers as they preach out of the book of John. But it's important for you as well as you study the book of John. Listen to this. For quite different reasons, many preachers are so busy drawing applications for their own congregations that they skip the prior question. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? This is not the question of unreflective pietism. It is the question that must be asked precisely because the material we're studying is a gospel. John's stated purpose in composing the fourth gospel is not that his readers might believe, but that his readers might believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And that in believing, they might have life in his name. To hammer away at the urgency of belief without pausing to think through what it is John wants his readers to believe and whom it is John wants them to trust is to betray the gospel of John. Every page of the book of John is pressing home to us the conviction that Jesus Christ is the eternal God and saving Messiah and that we are all hopelessly lost without him. Every page of this book is about that. It's very trendy in our postmodern era, the 21st century, to read out of the red letters. In fact, there's a group called the Red Letter Christians. You can check them out online. There are a number of writers, current writers, who are bestsellers in the bookstores right now, who are among these Red Letter Christians. And they live in the red letters, and they, they love the red letters, but they, they empty the content of Jesus' saving mission. And they turn Jesus into a merely human social reformer. He's a sort of hippie on a pilgrimage, walking through Palestine with all of his friends, trying to, you know, he's the voice of the oppressed. He's the enemy of the religious institution. And he's precious little more than that in their writings. Well, that stands in stark contrast to the Jesus of John. Because the the Jesus of John is the exalted Lord of heaven and earth come down to save his people, to redeem them from their sins to restore the whole of creation and to usher in the everlasting kingdom of his father. This is the exalted Jesus of John four. And this is 
This is the Jesus who's sitting on the well in Samaria. He is God. Fully God. He is the Savior. He is the eternal God and saving Messiah. Interestingly, John's gospel even begins with this account. Remember in John 1, where he takes us, we time travel all the way back to the beginning and before the beginning. Before anything was created. And who do we see there? Jesus. The pre-incarnate, eternally existing God through whom the world is created. And there he is in all of his glory. So we're going to see, even in John 4 and through the rest of all these accounts, that Jesus is not just simply on a parade to lift the fallen, tell stories to children, go to parties, hang out with people. Jesus is coming to save us. Jesus is coming to redeem. He is on mission from God. Now, as we come to John 4, and as the woman comes to the well in verse 7, she doesn't know any of that. She's never read John 1. It'll, it'll probably be written after she's dead. She's never read John 1. She knows nothing about this. All she sees is, again, this weary Jewish man. It's interesting that that. For all the vivid portraits of the glory and majesty of Jesus as God, this account begins with his humanity. That's, frankly, all that she sees. It's the only thing that she sees. Jesus is so tired. He's apparently more exhausted than his friends are. He sends them to go get food and come back. I'm going to sit here by the well. You guys go into town. I'm going to get a drink of water. That's the Jesus who comes here. That's the one that she approaches as he begins this conversation. And how does he begin it? He says, give me a drink. And what's her response as Jesus invades her space? She's short with him. She says, he says, give me a drink. She says, we shouldn't be having this conversation. Your law forbids it. You know the background between Jews and Samaritans? This thing goes a long way. I mean, sometimes you might wonder, what's the deal with a good Samaritan? What's so good about walking by, seeing somebody who's dying on the side of the road and picking them up? Wouldn't anybody do that? Well, not if you knew the background of Jews and Samaritans and how hostile they were, how much they hated each other and where that came from. See, this originated hundreds of years before 722 B.C., okay, the, the kingdoms are divided. There's a northern kingdom of Israel. There's a southern kingdom of Judah, right? And the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom of Israel and they deport many of the people, many of the Jews in Samaria. Samaria was pretty much the capital of Israel in the northern kingdom. And when the Assyrians invade and they deport the people back to Assyria, they leave some of the people there and they repopulate the city with heathens, pagans, people from the nations who didn't worship the one true God. Idol worshipers are now everywhere. Idol shops and, and, and metal workers are forming up carved and graven images all over town suddenly. The whole city changes in its definition and its whole feel. And over time, wouldn't it be natural for these people to look around and start to think, I don't know if my husband is ever going to come back. I don't know if, if our friends and loved ones who were deported, if we're ever going to see them again or if they'll be killed in Assyria or if they'll die out there, if we'll ever see them again. So they start to look around. 
And they see that Mr. Assyria, who's working on their house or fixing their windows, looks mighty strapping. And he looks like he might do a good job helping me raise the kids. And so they start to intermarry with the idol worshiping nations around them. And they culturally crack and they give way and their faith is evaporated. And then in the southern kingdom of Judah, Babylon attacks, lays siege to the southern kingdom, pulls those people away into Babylon. And once the people return from the southern kingdom, they come back only to discover that the Jews in the northern kingdom have even dropped the name Jew. Now they're so enmeshed in the culture, they've taken on the name of the city in which they live. Now they call themselves Samaritans. They've evacuated their faith. And eventually they would even this woman talks about, do you worship on this mountain or that mountain? They would eventually even dedicate the temple on Mount Gerizim to Zeus. And the people from the southern kingdom considered them sellouts, fair weather worshipers of God. And they said, we would be defiled to interact with you. So if they had to go from, as Jesus is going, from Judea to Galilee, and they had to pass through Samaria, which is right in between them, frequently they would go all the way around, cross a section of the Red Sea, To go from one place to the next so that they wouldn't have to go through that defiled place called Samaria. That's how deep the hostility was between these two nations. And and there was even a law established in the southern kingdom that we don't interact with Samaritan people. We don't even use a Samaritan utensil and drink out of a Samaritan cup. And here's Jesus sitting on a Samaritan well talking with a Samaritan woman, asking for a drink from a Samaritan bucket. He has jumped all of the etiquette of of their religion. You see, that's why she turned to cold children and said, wait, hold on, what are you doing? You're a Jew and we don't do this. Jesus proceeds. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink and I'd give it to you. And she looks him up and down. She seems to be a savvy woman. She's, 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 she's experienced. She's had five husbands and six. Right. And so she, she's probably been hurt. She's probably got a there's a wall there, as Kronk would say. OK, this woman, she, she's uh, she's got a shell. She's hard. She's quick witted. She, she looks him up and down. She says, no, the reason I'm not asking you for a drink is you don't have a bucket. That's my bucket. This is my well. What are you going to do? Dive in there and fly out? I'm not asking you for a drink for obvious reasons. <laughs> Jesus looks down and says, I'm not talking about that water. But the water I'm talking about is different than that water. You, you come here often, right? You've been here a lot. You have to come back time and time again. The water I'm giving you, you drink it once and you're done for life. You drink it once and it percolates in you and satisfies your soul. And it brings to you an experience of eternal Life and she buys it. What have I got to lose? Okay, I'll take that. If it keeps me from having to come out here every day, I'll take it. Now, Jesus, if he were many uh, overly zealous evangelical witnesses, he would have grabbed her hands, led her in prayer right then and there, got the commitment card, sign right here. And finish the deal right there. He would have closed the whole thing up. She's ready to go. She said she wants the water. Here's the water. But now Jesus discerns she's not ready. 
Now, she wants the water because it'll make her life more convenient and because she doesn't have to get around other people to take this. She's not ready. I, I want to see what happens when I shine the light on her heart and expose her sin. So where does he go? He says, go get your husband. And she answers with technical, kind of political accuracy. I don't have a husband. Well, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have, you've had five husbands. And, and the guy who's at your house right now isn't one of them. So Jesus is moving closer and closer and closer. Now, what does she do? Now, this is a pivotal moment. What is she going to do when, she's, when the light shines in her heart, when she has a chance to either step into the light or back away? What's she going to do in this moment? What she does is she evades. She changes the subject. Right? The subject changes from... We're talking about husbands. We're talking about, frankly, her sex life, her immoral background. And suddenly she's just got a hankering to figure out this debate between which mountain is the right mountain. That's a classic evasion technique that men and women have been getting down for centuries. And she pulls that out. She evades. She ducks around it. But interestingly, remember from the very beginning, Jesus had a purpose. Jesus wanted to make this woman a worshiper. So far from ducking away, she's actually moved right where he wants her. Oh, I'm glad you want to talk about worship. Actually, that's the reason I came here. Let's talk about worship. You know what? Worship doesn't have anything to do with mountains. This or that sacred place. And he goes through this and you can see it in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's going to be a moot point. That will be an obsolete discussion. He goes on to say the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So he says to her, worship basically is about life. And the Father, when he put worship together... As he seeks worshipers, he seeks two things, two essential ingredients make worship. And without them, there is no worship, no matter which mountain you're on. Two essential ingredients. One is that we worship in spirit and that we worship in truth. Worshiping God in spirit, obviously to Jesus, is the opposite of merely outward observances of sacred places and sacred rituals. He's moving it away from that. And he's saying worship rises out of an internal principle of the heart. Worship comes from the spirit of a man, from the spirit of a woman. And and, and worship is validated not by places and positions. It's validated by the posture of our hearts and whether we want to love God from our hearts and we are willing to obey God from our hearts. So he radically internalizes the nature of worship to this woman. Now, what's the edge on this? The edge is the fact that they just talked about her immoral background. What connection does that question about her husband's have to do with worshiping in spirit? Well, here's the edge on it. He's basically saying, if you would. True worshipers don't argue about this or that mountain while they're bunking up with bachelor number six. But true worship lays its claim on every aspect of our lives. Every sphere of our lives is dominated by the call to worship God from the heart. In other words, worship is mobile. 
Worship is portable. It doesn't just happen on Gerizim or on Zion. It happens wherever the worshiper goes, he is called to worship. Because it rises, it stands or falls on the posture of someone's heart before God and their willingness to obey him or not. That's what it means to worship in spirit. Now, you ever met anybody who's who's rabid about a certain belief system while some other aspect of their lives is in glaring disobedience to God? Are you that person? Where, where you might have all of your arguments down for why homosexual marriage is wrong, but you cheat on your taxes. Or, you, know, or you, you, you have this, this huge view about the gifts of the Spirit not being for today, and you want to argue and fight with people over that back and forth and back and forth, but you're on X-rated websites. You see the disconnect there? That's what Jesus is going after. Worship in Spirit is a holistic way of life. It's about pursuing God. It's about loving God. It's about obeying God from the heart. It's not about picket lines and winning arguments. Worship is for living. It's for everyday life. He's moving the categories of worship as he talks to her about this. Worship gets underneath if you will, those controversial issues, those mountain issues, those Gerizim versus Zion issues. It gets underneath that and it goes to your darling sins, as Thomas Watson wrote. Your favorite ones that you like to cuddle, that you like to hide those. You'd rather, if you're, if you're going to confess your sins in a, in a meeting or you confess your sins to a brother or a sister, you'd rather send some other sin forward. Keep this one back. Now, worship says, bring it all here. Let's come all the way into the light. That's what it means to worship in spirit. True worship rises from an internal desire to love and obey God. It's not just in spirit, it's in truth. John 3.20, just one chapter ago, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light in and of himself. Does he come to the light because he or she has got it together? No, it goes on to say so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. God has drawn you to the light. You've come to the light. And that's a sign that you are willing to follow him. That's what worship and truth means. So what is this woman going to do in the moment of truth? She balks, doesn't she? She evades, she ducks around it. She balks at the truth. We've experienced that before. Perhaps some of you are experiencing that right now. Maybe, maybe you have seen something of your need for the Savior, and yet for some maybe unexplainable reason, you hesitate. And you're right there. You haven't crossed the line. You're, you're, something is holding you back. Just like this woman. It's amazing that Jesus just keeps on fishing. He keeps on drawing and pulling and probing this woman, drawing her out into the truth, into the light. That's what worship means. Worship means true worshipers don't evade the truth and run from the holiness of God. True worshipers, they come to the light and they reckon with God, whoever he is. They come and they say, I want to see God. 
I want him to confront whatever issues he needs to confront. And knowing that conviction of sin is a grace, knowing that conviction is not the last word. And I think at this point in the conversation, this woman knew conviction is not the last word. Why? Well, because it wasn't the first word. You remember Jesus' first word to this woman? I'll give you water if you ask. He led with promise. Not with warning. He led with promise. He, he, he put that out in front of her so that she could see there's something that satisfies for all of my life. And instead of, instead of letting her just jump and grab it, he said, no, you need to come face to face with the holiness of God and with the sinfulness of your own heart. And then you're ready. If you still want it after that, then you're ready to worship in truth. Because you're not afraid of your past and your baggage. You're not afraid of God. Whoever he is, whatever he is, I want him. I want the truth. I want to hear it. If, it's, if it doesn't agree with everything I've heard, In my past, I still want to hear it. What do you got to say? Tell me. What's the truth? Conviction is not the last word because it points to a Savior. And that's what Jesus does. He says, the only part of this argument that Jesus really solves and comes down and puts it to rest for good is he does say, he does look at her and say, you were wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. This is not simply as long as you're sincere. No, he wants to clarify the Savior, the one who convicts, the one who draws you into the worship that God requires, that God seeks. That that Savior comes from the Jews. So he points her beyond conviction of sin to the Savior. And what does she do? She responds. And this time, this time there's a note of eagerness. Do you detect that? There's a note of eagerness in in 25 after he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She said, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She sounds so different than that cynical woman who said we shouldn't be having this conversation. She said, he who is called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. See, now... Now it's all coming together for her, isn't it? She's relating this to prophecy. She's thinking, wait, Deuteronomy talked about this, that there would rise another prophet like Moses, only far greater. He would declare to us all things. And this is all coming together in a moment. She's thinking, he came and he read my mail. And, And I'm being drawn to this truth and I'm being drawn to this God and this Savior who's from the Jews and it's all coming together hundreds of years of Old Testament prophecy is lining itself up in her mind and she wants it now and now she wants it for all the right reasons and what does Jesus do when she says I'm ready I'm, I'm ready to meet him I want to meet the Savior I want to meet the God who is spirit I want to meet the one who is the truth the one who makes and seeks worshipers And he says, here he is. I who speak to you am he. That supreme, revelatory, saving moment. Where Jesus shows himself to be both eternal God and saving Messiah. 
not just for the world faceless mass of people, but for that Samaritan prostitute. He's come for her. You see how Jesus in this whole process was drawing her out? You know, we talked about, we talk about exegeting Scripture, drawing out what's in God's Word. As we've been exegeting John 4, Jesus has been exegeting the Samaritan woman. He has been drawing her out like water from a well. Drawing her out to himself. Bringing her closer and closer to him. You see how he's been myth-busting all of her false views of worship? Systematically deconstructing what she believed about worship. And he's moving the categories of worship away from things like Gerizim and mountains. And he's moving it into every tax booth, metal shop and bedroom in Palestine. And he's saying that God who seeks worshipers seeks you. What do you do with that? And you can even hear in verse 25 that somewhere between verse 7 and verse 25... She has found herself thirsty. Because earlier she wasn't. Earlier she was cynical on that question. If you ask me for a drink, I'd give it to you. She looks him up and down and says, no thanks. Now she's saying, I know there's a Messiah. He's made worship both radically extensive. He's moved worship into every place in life. And he's made worship radically intensive. He's moved it into every place in her. Every space of her life is now claimed by the command and the call to worship. But I want to look at one more thing. One, one missing piece that we haven't talked about that is utterly crucial for everything that's come up to this moment. Because the fact of the matter is when Jesus offers her this water, he can't give it to her. Unless he pays for it first. There are, there are two inklings that are underneath this text that provide a missing piece that fits in with the rest of John's gospel. Look at D.A. Carson's quote. It says, in this chapter, the water that Jesus is offering is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit That only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. Look at John 4.13 again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the relationship between water and eternal life has a long-standing, a very long-standing history in Hebrew literature. Because 800 years before Jesus is sitting at this well, there was a prophet named Isaiah who was writing to people and who was inviting people, thirsty people, to come and have a drink of eternally satisfying water. He was was alluding to a moment somewhere down the road where a new covenant would transpire and water would be distributed to anyone who asked for it. And that water would be the equivalent of eternal life. Earlier in Isaiah, 
you can read that. I think I put the quote in there. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, earlier in the same book of Isaiah, if you back up into chapter 12, there's another allusion to this water that will be for God's people. And interestingly, it's an invitation to come and drink the water. It's an invitation to the people who are returning from the Assyrian captivity. To this woman's ancestors. See, she would have known about 722 B.C. She would have known about that. The Assyrian invasion, the captivity, the exile. She would have, that would have been an integral part of her personal biography. Every time a Jew looks at her and and winces his or her eyes, that's because of 722 B.C. She knows that moment very well. And so here's this moment in Isaiah chapter 12 where the people who have been exiled to Assyria are called back. And what are they called back to? God's people, Isaiah said, would return from exile in Assyria and they would meet the Savior by a well. Isaiah 12 says, with joy, you will draw water, not from Jacob's well. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And on that day, you will say, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. See here in John 4, here's a returned exile from Assyria. She's at the well being offered eternal water by the Holy One of Israel himself in living color. And according to Isaiah 55, it's free, at least for her. It's not free for him. Hence the reason he's here. This is the reason that when he talks about this new worship in John chapter 4, verse 21 and following, when he talks about this new worship that's coming, this new worship that rises from, from a spirit that's been awakened by the Holy Spirit, when he talks about that new worship, the hinge phrase on which that new worship turns is this phrase, the hour. D.A. Carson says, the hour is coming as a phrase when unqualified always points in John's gospel to the hour of Jesus's cross, resurrection and exaltation or to events related to Jesus's passion and exaltation. So he's saying the hour is coming, but not in the sense of it's coming somewhere out there in the distant future, like Isaiah said, 800 years before Jesus. No, he says the hour is coming and is now here. So this hour is fast approaching. This hour in which we will now worship in spirit because our spirits have made, been made alive by the Holy Spirit who has been given. But the Holy Spirit can't be given until something else happens. Until Jesus buys the water with his blood. He has to buy a storehouse, an infinite storehouse of eternally satisfying water for his sin-laden people. And that's what he offers this woman. And he says, in essence, once I buy it and I go to the Father and I send the Spirit, then, oh, then 
will you worship. Then you will worship in spirit because you have a new internally rising heart desire to love and obey God. And then you will worship in truth because you won't run from the holiness of God. You'll run to God. And you'll reckon with Him as He truly is. You'll know salvation has indeed come from the Jews. And you'll say, I'm thirsty. Give me a drink. And you'll say all of that because of what I've accomplished for you. And the Bible even closes with one last invitation to men and women and children from first century Samaritan to 21st century New Orleanian. And it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. You see what's amazing here? Is that Jesus, within moments of meeting this woman, He's offering her water that will cost Him His life. Because he's going to have to pay for that at the cost of his own blood. His own life will be spilled out to give this woman the water that he's promised. The water that will cause her to be a true worshiper. At the end of the day, Jesus is again shown to be both eternal God. Remember, he says, God seeks worshipers. And here's Jesus revealing the heart of God. He's seeking a worshiper. So he reveals himself to be both eternal God and saving Messiah because because he's done so much more than than his grandfather, Jacob, who dug this well to serve the people. He gave his life to save the people. He offers up himself so that he can look at every one of us, and say, do you want eternally satisfying water? I've bought it. And you can take it freely without price if you're willing to come to the light, reckon with the God who is, and then spend your life pouring out in the abundance of what the Spirit has done in your heart. That's what worship is all about. This is God. This Jesus is God. In the same way that he called the Samaritan woman to worship him, he calls you and me to worship him. Are you a worshiper? Are you, do you worship in spirit and in truth? Has Jesus been tampering with your categories of worship throughout this passage? Has he been moving it from wherever it is that you content yourself to live as a Christian? To the places where he says, no, my my lordship is ubiquitous. My lordship is, it, it extends into every sphere of your life. Nothing is yours. I've bought everything for you. You give your life to me and I'll write your story. And it'll be a story of everlasting joy. Will you come to him? Are you thirsty? Have you ever responded to the grace of God? Are you like the Samaritan woman? Maybe you've been hesitating all this time, but right now you feel like the Savior's been talking to you. Do you know that you can drink the water this morning? Let's pray.
Let me just invite you. <clears throat> that if, if you, in your, in, in your own heart of hearts, as you've heard this message, and you feel like, I'm, I'm a Christian, is this possible? I'm a Christian Samaritan woman, because, because I feel like I have come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet I have not understood what true worship is all about. I've not been living my life in every sphere for the glory of the one who saved me. I've been running from the light. I don't want to confess my sins. I don't want to be tampered with. I want convenient Christianity. Let me urge you, as I'm praying for you to join me, praying yourself and asking God to make it right. To set your heart in a proper posture before him. If you're the Samaritan woman and you've never responded to the call of Jesus, to his saving call, and you feel like, I wasn't thirsty before, but I'm thirsty now. You too, you can pray and you can just say, Jesus, save me. It doesn't have to be this profound prayer written by a theologian, it can just be so simple. God, have mercy on me. Save me. Save me. I want your water. Just say that. If you want it, just say it. He will freely give it. And you don't have to pay for it. Because Jesus already did. Let's stand together and worship. Dead in transgressions and sins Without God, without hope in this world Then the glorious light of your gospel broke in The Father stood up from his throne Opened his arms as he called out my name Grace irresistible truly Open my eyes to see You are the way You are the truth You are the life, Jesus The only way The only truth You are my life, Jesus Dead in transgressions, dead in transgressions and sins, without God, without hope in this world. Then the glorious light of your gospel broke in. The Father stood up from his throne, opened his arms as he called out my name. Grace irresistible to me, open my eyes to see. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, Jesus. The only way, the only truth, 
You are my life. 